Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we not only pronounce French words uh, the wrong way, but we also discuss philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode will be on the brain in a vat. Uh, whether you are one, whether you can be justified in any of your beliefs, uh, if you are or aren't one, uh, I have with me Dr. Sandy Goldberg of Northwestern Philosophy, and I'm really excited to talk with him. Just love the way he thinks about stuff. Before I do, I want to thank all the Patreon patrons, all the supporters over there. You guys are awesome. Seriously awesome. Like I really, really appreciate you guys supporting the show. If you aren't a patron and you benefited from the show, please consider joining my patron team. You can support me uh, through the link in the description. You can also support this podcast by subscribing at YouTube and above and beyond, which would be huge. If you go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review and a comment. That'd be fantastic. Uh, Maybe we're just brains in a vat, but uh, anyways, please do that. Uh, without further ado, let's just jump right in. Dr. Goldberg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Parker. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So um, I know that a lot of your work is in epistemology. Do you consider yourself an epistemologist or are you a philosopher who's interested in theories of knowledge? How do you think of your, your own work? So I tend to think of myself as somebody who gets obsessed with questions, and then uh, I go wherever those questions lead me. It turns out that most of the questions I've been interested in recently have been in the theory of knowledge. So in that sense, I guess I, I do consider myself an epistemologist. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Uh, well, how'd you, how'd you ever end up getting into philosophy and, and doing that professionally in the first place? I had a great high school English teacher by the name of Dr. Coppola, and in English my senior year... He was the first teacher that I ever thought who really seriously challenged me and challenged me intellectually. And I just found that not only the challenge was exciting, but also he allowed me to be the intellectual spitballer from the back of the room that I always <laughs> aspired to be. Yeah. And when I talked to him after my senior year, he told me, well, what we were really doing was philosophy. And then from that time on, I think I was hooked. Okay. Awesome. Um, so so what did you end up doing your, your dissertation on? I did my dissertation on topics related to uh, our, our topic today, the brain and the vat. I was exploring one of the um, semantic and epistemic implications of Hilary Putnam's reflections in The Meaning of Meaning. And of course, the, the reflections on the brain and the vat are, are um, an extended discussion of the implication that I was interested in. Awesome, man. That's perfect then. So today we're going to be talking about uh, your edited volume, Brain in a Vat, and that's with the uh, Cambridge Classical philosophical uh, arguments um, series and fantastic book. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, why? So you, you said you you like to be an intellectual spitball or that. I mean, that's a lot of time to spend on Putnam's work. You put, it's like five years of six years, whatever in your dissertation. Why, why brain in a vat? Uh, so <laughs> you're right. You're right. Parker, although I would say that anyone who spends the time on a, a PhD in philosophy is probably spending more time than you can, <laughs> that you can justify to, to the, to the world. Yeah. Um, I, I got interested actually, uh, in an indirect way. I was interested in w the relationship between language and thought. And what interested me about Putnam's work in particular, the, the paper, the very influential paper, the meaning of meaning was this very provocative conclusion that he, um, that he gave in that paper, the way he put it in his provo characteristically provocative fashion was um, he was talking about meanings mm -hmm. and he says, cut the pie any way you like it, talking about meanings, meaning just ain't in the head. Yeah. And I thought to myself, meaning ain't in the head. Well, then what in the world, where is meaning? Where is this thing that we call meaning? What does meaning attach to? And to make a very, very, very long and boring story short, 
uh, it took me two and a half years to work out at least one of the implications of that Putnamian view, and and that is uh, that's where that's where I am today. Oh, that's awesome. Do you, do you um do you consider yourself a, a content externalist, a semantic externalist yourself? I I do. Um, so the, the Putnam's arguments from the meaning of meaning actually convinced me that if we want to be able to make sense of the contents of our thought and the meanings of our words that we should think that what it is that determines those are, are uh, they include factors that we may not be aware of. Yeah. And that's what it, it, that's my rough and very, very loose translation of what he meant by meanings ain't in the head. So I do consider myself a content externalist. Okay. That's awesome. I, I got there by uh, Donald Davidson's triangulation argument just recently, just because I, I love Davidson. I think that argument's fantastic. I think it's got some more legs than he even knew about. We'll see. But um as we get into the brain and the vat, some of the, you know, we're all over the listeners are all over the place. Um, a lot of people will attribute the brain and the vat to Descartes. And I just, I don't think he had the conceptual uh, space for that kind of, you know, brain and the vat thing. Um, did Putnam invent the brain and the vat? Is it just a, is it an addition to, or, or just taking the, the ball a little bit further of like the dream argument or the evil genius or genie? Uh, who, who, who invented this, this skeptical argument? I, I, my, my impression is that it is, it's fair to attribute to Descartes hmm. um, the basic materials that you need. What you really need is you need the materials that will enable you to distinguish what we might call um, your perspective on the world and the world itself. The, hmm. the basic idea raised by the Brandon the Vat thought experiment is that um, your perspective on the world, what you think about it, your experiences, how you interpret them, might be radically um, detached from how the world actually is. And I found that in the first and second meditations, Descartes was essentially trying to get at that worry with the, the evil genius um, thought experiment. So in that sense, I, I think it is fair to say that, that uh, Descartes um, had this in mind. It may well be that there are other philosophical traditions, even before Descartes, that mm. had views like this in mind. I am not an expert on those. And so uh, I can't weigh in on that, but it wouldn't surprise me if it actually goes back even further than 17th century France. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. So um, we'll, we'll spend like most of the time here today talking about different uh, answers to whether Putnam is successful or not uh, in his refutation or proposed refutation. But um, before we get in, can you just briefly sketch? I know this was like, you know, your whole dissertation, but can you sketch his reply to the brain in the vat uh, skeptical thesis? So, so what's interesting, I'll take a step back first. What's interesting yeah. about, about Putnam himself, and, and it's one of the things that made me deeply respect him, he had many different views uh, throughout his career on virtually everything, but certainly when it came to the significance of the brain and the vat reflections. Um, his early work, uh, this isn't particularly early, but maybe the 1970s, the meaning of meaning work, is work in which he proposed that um, semantic externalism, this, this view about how our words get their meanings and how our contents, how our thoughts get their contents, he thought that this would provide a refutation for brain in the vat skepticism. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought that, in fact, what would happen is that um, if you were a semantic externalist, you could prove that if you were a brain in the vat, you couldn't think that you were a brain in the vat, and that we couldn't even formulate the hypothesis that we were uh, the, brain, the brain in the vat, yeah. precisely because our words would then have different meanings. And he thought that this was a way, in a, through a very complicated series of arguments, he thought that this showed that the brain of the vat hypothesis skeptical scenario is in fact incoherent and can be refuted. I should point out that he also is famous for several years later for having introduced an argument where he thought the conclusion was not that brain of the vat skepticism is, uh, is incoherent, but that we should reject some of the metaphysical assumptions mm -hmm. that brain of the vat skepticism needs to get going, um, namely what he called metaphysical realism. Yeah. So, so that that really is a, is a view that he came to. I think I don't know if I have my dates exactly right, but I think that was in in 1980 and 81. He published a series of papers where he thought the real the real doctrine to be uh, to be thrown out is the doctrine of metaphysical realism, the doctrine that our um, if you like that that reality could outstrip our very best and most ideal attempts to to, to know it and to understand it. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the authors uh, in one of the chapters in here talked about that. I think in the model theoretic, one of those uh, chapters. That's right. That's right. And, and it was so interesting. And there's kind of it seems like there's kind of some debate on what is the extent and who's the real target. And if he was a, um, so that was really interesting to to hear you talk about kind of his his own personal progress in thinking that. Do does he is his 
um, is his own view. Is it called internal realism? Is that right? That's the view that he was developing at around the time that he was presenting what you rightly call the model theoretic argument. That's okay. right. That it's a kind of it, the thought is that there is a, a sense in which the world is is independent of our of our conceptual scheme, but we can only understand the world from within conceptual schemes, in particular within within our conceptual schemes. Yeah. And to, to balance those two out, in in a very complicated way, very Putnamian way, he he uh, he developed this this version of metaphysics that he called internal realism. Internal realism. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and to me, it sounds very much like uh, Kant's noumena phenomena uh, divide. Is it like, is it, I'm sure it's probably more nuanced and stuff, but is that like a fair assessment? Do, do people charge him as being a, a Kantian in that sense? So um, that's a good question. I, I don't know whether people charge him with that, but I can tell you that I think you are right to see a parallel between uh, what we might call heavy-duty metaphysical realism, yeah. and the kind of thing that Putnam ultimately ended up ended up endorsing. Heavy he, heavy-duty metaphysical realism is, if you like, the the, the what Kantian noumena. Yeah. Um, whereas what what he was interested, I wouldn't say it's, it was the phenomenal world because he was not really talking so much about, if you like, phenomenology as the world as we take it to be, as we conceive it to be, or as we believe it to be, that really, that's his version of the, the Kantian phenomenon. It's not so much uh, phenomenology, sure. perhaps it wasn't for Kant either, but it, yeah. is, it certainly wasn't just phenomenology for, uh, for Putnam. So, so um, for, for Putnam, there is, there's, is there nothing, I think maybe, maybe one of the authors brought this out as well. Is there nothing out, if you said there's nothing outside our concepts, it sounds like you're nuts. It sounds like the solipsism. Is Putnam saying just we can't reach that because of our mental framework, because of our the, the concepts that we have um, also has a, a shaping um, element to how we see the world? Uh, is there any possibility of getting around that? So what's what's really beautiful about your question and, and also about your struggling to articulate it, I really appreciate this. You are getting to the limits uh, where where it's not clear where, whether one is doing epistemology or one is doing metaphysics. Yeah. yeah. Um, when when Putnam is developing his view, and and I should say also, um, since I, I know many people will be listening to this, I am not an expert on Hillary Putnam. Um, so so if any of you know experts on Hillary Putnam and they disagree with me, believe them, don't believe me. <laughs> but it, it does strike me. I did have several conversations with him in this period of his career. Wow. And it strikes me that what he was trying to get at in his internal realist phase was a kind of metaphysics. It wasn't merely epistemological. The thought mm. was that there have to be some epistemic constraints on what there is. It's not, it's not there are constraints on what we can know there to be. Yeah. I think he was actually aiming to get at metaphysics. Namely, wow. there have to be epistemic constraints on what there is. Uh, we can't make sense of um, what there is independent of our, if you like, of our perspective on things. Yeah. Okay. That's that's helpful. And that that's from the lim limited, limited that I know of Putnam. It sounds right because in a similar vein as, as Davidson, they didn't want um, skepticism sneaking in. And a lot of a lot of what they were charging the the realists with is, look, you have this this gap between what we can know and what's out there. And that leaves us room for all the skeptical doubts to creep in and overtake everything. And so if he was doing metaphysics and he's saying that the limit is not in our knowledge, but it's a limit in reality. So we can know the the real world, the, the, the thing in itself or whatever. Good. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a nice way of putting it. And I, I think you're, you're right also in trying to get Davidson into conversation with Putnam. There are interesting differences, and, and yeah. we, we may have a chance to, to talk about those, but I do think that they were both keen on making sure that we had our eye on the shared world as we tried to make sense of ourselves and each other through our use of language. Yeah, man, that's so fantastic. Um, okay, so so we got some more some more history there. Um, what's, yeah, what's the crux of Putnam's, um, his argument? So, so it depends on which one you mean. If you mean the argument where he was trying to prove that Brandon and Vat skepticism is false, that's one argument. If the model theoretic argument is another one, I, I, yeah. I'm happy to talk about either or both of those. Let's try the first first. The, the model theoretic uh, warps my mind. It's, it's really good. But um, the, the first one, the, the uh, proposed uh, self-contradiction or self-refutation of Brandon and Vat. So the thought was this. Um, I'm going to do this very, very crudely, but I, I hope that it's at least um, intelligible. The thought was this. Ask yourself what it is that determines uh, what we mean by our words or what contents there are to our thoughts. And if you want to get a sense of what Putnam was worried about, 
I find it helpful here to think about somebody who's done a portrait. And I want you to imagine the following. I want you to imagine somebody does a portrait. There's a, there's a person, there's a sitter who's sitting in front of her and she does a portrait and the portrait is, is pretty good. Uh, but imagine we ask the question, who is that portrait of? And now suppose the answer, you, the answer that you give is, well, well, it's of the sitter. And I ask you, well, what makes it of the sitter? And you say, because it resembles her, it looks like her. Hmm. But now suppose that it turns out that because the portrait artist wasn't so great, that portrait that she painted is actually looks more like some other person whom she's never seen than it does the actual sitter. Would that make the portrait of the person that it, it more closely resembles? You'd say to me, no, it wouldn't make it of her. After all, the, the portrait artist never saw that person. Yeah. And that suggests the key idea that Putnam had in his externalist phase. The idea was that just as what makes this portrait a portrait of that sitter is at least in part the fact that that person was the person who was sitting for the painter as she painted. In other words, we have to talk about an object out there in the world. We can't discern what the portrait it, who the portrait is of merely by looking at the portrait itself. We have to know who is out there in the world. So too Putnam thought in 1976 that if you want to ask what are our words, what are they, what do they mean? Um, you need to look into the world to see what we use those words to refer to. And the famous example he gave was the example of twin earth, a world just like like our world, except the things that are in the, the, the liquid in the water, in the streams and in the rivers and that falls from the sky isn't liquid H2O. It's a different liquid with a different chemical su uh, substrate. It's just that it tastes, smells and looks a lot like uh, our, our H2O, our water. XYZ, I think. XYZ yeah. was the technical, the technical chemical composition that he ascribed <laughs> yeah. to it. Um, Putnam said, look, so if you grew up on Twin Earth and you use the word water to refer to that, that uh, liquid out there, you would be referring to uh, that stuff. You would not be referring to our, you would not be referring to water. You would not be referring to H2O. That suggests that if you think that the meaning of a word is what determines the reference of the word, the meaning of the word on tw uh, water on Twin Earth is going to differ from the meaning of the word water on Earth. On Earth, the meaning of the word water is such as to pick out H2O. Um, in fact, it picks out H2O. That's, that's, that's what it means. It will pick out H2O whenever you use that word. Whereas on Twin Earth, that word will pick out XYZ wherever you are. Uh, whenever you use the word, it'll pick out XYZ. And Putnam thought, if that's right, and I'm sorry for a long-winded answer to the question. This is great. Um, Putnam thought, if that's right, now imagine that's true of our words generally. That is, when we use our words, what determines what they mean is, at least in part, the things out there in the world to which we attach them or try to apply them, or the things out there in the world to which we refer. What that means is that if you were a brain in a vat, you would use the word brain not to refer to brains, but to refer to something else, because you've actually never been in contact with the brain. And you would use the word vat not to, not to refer to vats because you've never been in contact, presumably, with vats, at least not through your experience. You would mean different things with your, with your words. And what he thought that meant was that, that you couldn't, in fact, formulate for yourself using the language of brains and vats that you were a brain in a vat. Yeah. And in a, in a series of articles, he tried to use this to draw the conclusion that if you were a brain in a vat, you couldn't think that you were a brain in a vat. And in fact, it wouldn't so much as be conceivable that you were a brain in a vat. And this was the argument that in the, in the hands of other, other people, many other people thought could be used to refute brain in the vat skepticism. The thought was, look, if you even have the language to refer to brains and vats, that must be because you are in a world where you actually inter in, interact with brains and vats. And if you're in a world where you do in fact interact with brains and vats, then you can't be a brain in a vat, at least not somebody who um, who who has always been a brain in a vat, right. and that was that was the supposed refutation. Very long answer. I apologize, Parker. No, it's so good. It. That was really good, uh, Dr. Goldberg. So, um, I for for those who might be lost, really quick, I I like to think of like arrows. So, like, um, if if I'm thinking about being a brain in a vat, uh, the the arrow of my reference is going to point to either an actual vat that I've been in contact with, or it's going to point to something in the image. Maybe it's like digital, or if I'm a brain in a vat, it's pointing somewhere else. So I'm thinking. Oh, am I a brain in a vat? Well, if the arrow actually points to real vats, then I'm not. And if the arrow actually points somewhere else, uh, then then maybe I am. But either way, uh, 
an interesting point uh, for Putnam. There, there's a bunch of different ways to parse it, but an interesting point is for Putnam argues that it's it's false either way. If you are a brain in a vat, you're thinking I'm a brain in a vat, but that's false because uh, the well because of content externalism that the reference in the image of uh, that you're being fed into your brain, you're actually not a brain in a vat. You're just a person in reality. And if you're not a brain in a vat, then you're you're not a brain in a vat. So it's false if it's uh, true, and it's false if it's not true. So you, I think you mean it's false if you're a brain in a vat. The, the sentence "I'm yes. a brain in a vat" is false yes. if you're a brain in a vat, and it, that sentence is false if you're not a brain in a vat. Right. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I really liked that the first time I read through. Uh, it's in Reason, Truth, and History for anyone uh, who wants to read that essay, and it's I'm sure it's everywhere else too. Uh, and you can find a good majority of it in. Uh, Dr. Goldberg's Brain in a Vat book. Um, but uh, I don't know if this was because I read Nagel myself or if everyone just always goes to Nagel and Nagel ruined this, Nagel ruined it. Um, Nagel says, like, this is compounding our skepticism because if you were a brain in a vat, this would show that you just can't even think that thought. And he has some kind of, you know, line that everyone quotes that, like, if that's not skepticism, then I don't know what is. Uh, what, what would you make of Nagel's line there? So, so Nagel's line gave rise to the topic of, uh, that I was interested in my dissertation, which was something like this. Um, many people began to worry if the line of argument that, that you and I just went over is, um, is compelling. Many people began to worry that if Putnam's theory of how words get their meaning or how thoughts get their content is true, if content externalism is true, then we could fail to know what it is that we're thinking. Mm -hmm. We could fail to know our own thoughts. And that was, I think, what Nagel was gesturing at when Nagel said, this just compounds skepticism. Because if you think about the Cartesian scenario, whatever you think about Descartes, Descartes had the following, and I would say it's intuitively plausible idea that, look, we might make mistakes about the world out there. We were fallible creatures. We might think something's a tree when, in fact, it's a bush. We might think that something way out in the distance is a person when, in fact, it's a rock. We can make sense of how we can make mistakes about the world out there. But he thought it doesn't so much as make any sense whatsoever to assume that we don't fully know our own minds, what we're thinking. And what the upshot of this, this Putnamian series of reflections was, according to Nagel, that if, Na if, if Putnam is really right, it might be that we actually can make mistakes about what we're believing yeah. or what we're thinking. Or at the very least, we could fail to know the contents of our own thoughts. And this is the kind of thing that animated Nagel. And I will say it's the kind of thing that put me into the library, into Butler Library of Columbia University from 1993 to 1995, trying to figure out what 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 were the upshot, what was the upshot of all of these reflections. Yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense knowing uh, Nagel's, you know, the view from nowhere where he said that and then uh, the, the last word and, and how he's trying to put forward like a, a really strong rationalism in the line of Plato and, and Descartes. And um, it makes a lot of sense that he would take that up. Did you... Uh, Again, this is like summarizing uh, five years of work. But did you did you come down in between uh, Putnam and Nagel, or did you side more with Putnam against Nagel? So I actually um, came to a conclusion that was slightly different from both of them. Mm -hmm. It was a conclusion that was broadly inspired by another philosopher who was on the other side of the country, uh, Tyler Burge at UCLA. The conclusion that I came to was that the worry, the worry that led Nagel to think this only compounds our skepticism was not really a worry. That yeah. you could make sense of how, even if semantic externalism is true, so even if what determines what we mean by our words and uh, the contents of our thought are external features, features about which we may be ignorant, even if that's true, uh, we can still make sense of the idea that we always know the contents of our thoughts, that the contents of our thoughts are not things that are going to be mysterious to us. Okay, okay, wow, that's great. I got to look at that. Um, that sounds really interesting. So, so continuing on with 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 Brandon Avat, um, it seems like Putnam, um, the motivation for the whole his his whole early project was getting away from these magical theories of of reference, and it seems like that the impetus there was he didn't like natural kinds. Maybe uh, does does that sound right? Like why why did he start this whole thing? I, I actually would, would turn that on its head. You are absolutely right that he didn't like what he called magical theories of reference. Um, this is certainly true in uh, The Meaning of Meaning. It's also true in the book that you cited from the 80s, Reason, Truth, and History. But I, I thought, at least in The Meaning of Meaning, and, and I'm, I'm 
I think this is probably also true in, in Reason, Truth, and History. It's precisely because he liked natural kind terms okay. that he, um, he, he wanted to develop his theory. So the thought was, uh, look, we, we need, go back to the example of, the, um, of the, the, the portrait. We need some way, other than by postulating a, a mystery, um, we need some way of figuring out what a portrait is of, who or what it's of. Similarly with words, words, unfortunately, or depending on how you think about it, fortunately, words are also of or about things in the world, but they are, they, they, their relationship to the world is much more abstract. Um, there's no notion of resemblance when it comes to the world, except in very rare cases, you know, things like yes. onomatopoeia or things like that. Right. Um, so he wanted to ask, okay, so then what is it that determines the, the reference of, of a word or the meaning of a word? And I think it was precisely, certainly in the meaning of meaning, it was true that he took very seriously um, science and scientific postulation of natural kinds. Mm. And what he thought there was that they might actually contribute to what our words mean. And that was, that was certainly true in the meaning of meaning. Um, okay. So, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Uh, a clarif clarification there, man, that's great. Um, so yeah, that's, that's good. Cause that was, that was a problem. I really like natural kinds and I, I must've mistaken them there. Um, magical theories of reference uh, aside, let's, let's jump into some more um, like content uh, semantic externals and maybe not aside, maybe we're just going to go in deeper. Um, I, I really, I really like, content or semantic externalism of the Davidsonian variety. And like you said, I think there, there are a lot of similarities there. I think Davidson's is, is, is better if, you know, um, I don't know, um, my, my limited knowledge. And I like his uh, Swamp Man kind of stuff. Uh, one, of the, one of the authors put a brain in a swamp and they connected those two. I thought that was fantastic as well. Um, but Jesper Kalistrup? Jesper yes, yes, Kalistrup, yep. Okay, uh, Jesper. Um, made this argument that you don't need full-blown content externalism. You just need a causal constraint and you can use Putnam's argument. Uh, wh what do you make of that? Because that's really interesting to me if that's the case, but I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on whether you need full-blown content externalism in order to appropriate this type of argument. I, I tend to think that you, you do need full-blown content externalism. Um, Jesper's argument is, is interesting. It's been some time since I've read it, so I apologize to him no, no, about no. not having the details in front of me. But I tend to think that you do need a kind of full-blown content externalism. I should say content externalism itself is the name of what we might call a family of views. Okay. Uh, as you correctly point out, those views include people like Davidson. They also include people like Putnam, but they include people who are deeply interested in another phenomenon that we haven't talked about yet, which is the phenomenon of singular thought. Here I include people like um, John McDowell and Gareth Evans. Um, it's a wide variety of views. What they all have in common is the idea that if you want to know the meanings of our words or the contents of our thoughts, some people would say the, the, the truth conditions of our thoughts, you need to appeal to external items in the world. And uh, within that, there are very, very different views. And I tend to think that merely putting a causal constraint on, on thought as, as Jesper had suggested in, in, his, in his paper, isn't enough to put you in a position where you can exploit some of the other arguments that you're able to exploit if you are a, um, a full-going full content externalist. Yeah. And those are the arguments that we really, that we want to be able to, uh, to, I think, that we want to be able to exploit. Okay. Okay, yeah. So you, you want to push people into the content externalism. It's got a lot more, lot more to offer there. Um, this one, this is kind of random. Uh, sorry about that, but I've, I've been asking philosophers and no one... Um, has been able to give me kind of a straight answer. Maybe I'm just not asking the right people, but I'm going to ask you, can you be an internalist concerning justification and an externalist concerning, concerning content? Does that even make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. And there's a beautiful paper. Uh, I think it's by Earl Connie and, and Richard Feldman. I think they are the ones who wrote it, um, who pointed this out uh, in uh, an earlier edited volume called Internalism and Externalism in Semantics and Epistemology. I think it's Connie and Feldman who pointed this out. Okay. But if you think about it, an internalist about justification is just someone who thinks, well, um, what it is that justifies me in believing as I do has to be the kind of thing that I could in principle have access to mentally, if you like. Um, that's perfectly compatible with the idea that what it is that, de that determines what I mean by my words or what it is that determines the contents of my thoughts um, is, is in, at least in part something external. It may well be that if you want to put those two positions together, 
you're going to run into certain challenges. And here, the work of uh, Paul Bogosian and Sarah Sawyer, I think, have both done excellent work on this. Um, it may well be that you come into, there's some tension there, but that does not show that you can't put them together and resolve the tensions. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That that doesn't fit totally, but I just needed that answered. So that's really helpful. I'm going to listen back on that. Um, when, when it comes to causal constraints, when it comes to semantic externalism and you know having a, an external referent for your beliefs, um, I, I think again to, to Davison Swampman, and I'm not a huge Trekkie or anything like that. My dad watched some Star Trek and um, when Scotty beams someone up, um, depending on what he does there, it looks like he's uh, destroying that person and then reanimating them, but not the same molecules and stuff. And to me, it seems like he's making a bunch of uh, swamp men. Uh, if that's the case, are those do those are those like philosophical zombies or something? Do, do their um, concepts? It seems to me their concepts wouldn't refer uh, to the same external objects that the one before uh, Scotty beamed up. What, what do you make of that? So, so lots going on in that. That's a really <laughs> lovely set of reflections. Let, let me give you your assumptions and see if we can make sense of this. The sure. assumption number one is that you have the right account of what goes on when you go when Scotty beams them up, namely destroy a body, uh, recompose a different body with different parts. And you also wanted to assume, and this one I want to—I just want to put a question mark on. You also wanted to assume that when that the person comes out on the other side, uh, in fact, they are like a swamp man. Or you asked, are they like a swamp man? I, I want to put a question mark next to that one, Parker, for the following reason. Um, I, I was not a Trekkie, but I, I've seen enough of the early Captain Kirk uh, uh, Star Trek episodes to, yeah. to know that if that in, individual is a swamp person, then you can't. You that some things would turn out to be very surprising. For example, imagine Captain Kirk goes in and then is beamed up to another place, and then another individual that looks, sounds, and talks exactly like Kirk comes out the other end. If that individual is a swamp individual, and so it doesn't have, it has no thoughts. It's surprising that it makes sounds that saw, seem suspiciously like English sentences. Yeah. It's it's surprising that when you interpret them as English sentences, they come out to be English sentences that are more often than not true. Those things are very surprising if it turns out that these creatures don't have thoughts. So you might use this as an argument. You might use your little argument as an argument for why you don't want to consider them swamp creatures, uh -huh. uh, at least, or if you think of them as swamp creatures, you want to reject Davidson's account of swamp creatures as creatures that don't have thoughts. Okay. One of those two assumptions, I think, has to go. If it doesn't, you've got those surprises we just mentioned. Okay. Okay. So let's say that um, we, we we couch that and maybe we argue against Davidson's notion or something. Um, if uh, you, you've granted me my premise that they're destroyed and then they're they're brought back, would their concepts still refer to the same thing uh the same things as the person who was previously not destroyed so the reason i would want to be able to say yes although i haven't given you an argument that the answer is yes but the reason i would want to be able to say yes is because i would want to be able to uh, to explain those two features that i just um i just described so right so uh captain kirk gets out on a, on another planet um and he, he points at stuff over there and he says that that's a rock and it turns out if we interpret his, his language there as meaning that's a rock, then in fact his language comes out right. So that it would be extraordinarily surprising that he produces sentences that just happen to have the same sound as ordinary English sentences that are true if he didn't have these concepts. Yeah. So that's the reason why I want to say that he has these concepts. What you just, what you just gave us is um, a constraint on adequate theory. You want your adequate theory to be able to say, in fact, even if something happens in, um, you know, in these Star Trek cases, your semantic theory had better have it that the person who comes out on the other end has continues to have the same concepts. Yeah, there are various ways you can actually succeed in getting that, including denying that that it is it is a destruction and a, a creation of a different person. But I just want to point out that you have put down a nice constraint on theory. Okay, thanks. Well, so. Um, so would you then say, if you don't have the right causal history, you just wouldn't be able to make those uh, utterances with the right reference? So Captain Kirk on the other side, if he was destroyed, he's just not saying that's a rock. He's just going to be like a, a complete blank slate. That's what it sounded like you were you were getting at with your earlier suggestions. And there are there may be theories that imply that. I regard that as a cost of the theory. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but there may be theories that imply that. If, if your theory implies that 
look, Kirk on the other side isn't really the same individual as the individual who went into that machine. Um, and you also, your theory also implies that that um, Kirk is just making noises. Those noises have no no meaning. That that's that is an implication that some theories will have. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I I don't yeah I don't think it would be the same person. Um, that's great. This is this is really helpful. Uh, have you ever seen the Prestige at all? No, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. No, no problem. It's a, a movie about magicians and they're uh, duplicating themselves. And I think it's the same situation, but we, we covered enough of that. Uh, I wanted to get into uh, transcendental arguments because that's a hobby horse of mine. I love those. And uh, Putnam doesn't, I don't think he calls it a transcendental argument, but he, he uses the same language of, you know, preconditions or necessary preconditions. Uh, he, he, he says, um, he maybe he calls it a transcendental deduction or something, but it's really close. And I just wanted to see, um, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think that Putnam's argument, um, even if it's not successful, is at least in the form of a transcendental argument? It certainly, certainly the version that you gave earlier sounds like it's in the form of a transcendental argument. If you think of a transcendental argument as an argument that talks about um, uh, the, con- I mean, th- using the Kantian language, a condition for the possibility of some kind of uh, phenomenon or some kind of state of affairs, it looks like it has that that structure. The the version you gave actually does have that structure because remember the version you gave, uh, it was supposed to show you that whether or not you're a brain in a vat, you can't truly think a thought with the ex- sentence "I am a brain in a vat." Right. Um, that looks like that is uh, that looks like it's a kind of argument that shows you that a condition for being able to truly think the thought with the sentence "I am a brain in a vat" is that you are not a brain in a vat, yeah. um, and so that looks like it has the structure of a transcendental argument. I always get worried. I mean, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you actually like them. I've always worried about transcendental arguments. They both strike me as intriguing and also fishy. So if you can have a category of the intriguing and fishy, that's what transcendental arguments have, uh, have for me. Definitely. So, yeah. 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 And um, there's a great quote about that. It's like all the, oh man, I forgot it. But all the, like the, uh, I'll, I'll figure it out later. I'll put it in the thing, but um, it's definitely a lot of people think they're fishy if not, uh, but also, also intriguing because if you, if you can make one work, it's fascinating. If you like, what, what must our reason tell us? Um, you, you kept on going like this and uh, I think you're, you're using quotations and you're, and that's what they're um, some of the authors have pitched the argument as uh disquotational. So our language disquotes. And so because our language disquotes, uh, we can't be a brain in a vat because there's a vat vatnese or vat English does not disquote this one. When, when people show me this, it's, it, it really freaks me out. It makes me just think the argument collapsed because it does seem like circular reasoning to say, look, my, my language, when I talk about uh, being a brain in a vat, um, my language disquotes. And if, if I were in a vat, it wouldn't, but what do you make of that? Cause it, it does seem to me like it's might be viciously circular there. I, I don't know whether it's true that um, if I were a brain in the vat, my language wouldn't disquote. What is true is if I were a brain in the vat, my language wouldn't disquote into standard English. Mm-hmm. So what, what I worry about in these kinds of cases, and, and here I'm going back to, to thoughts that I've had 20 years ago, Parker, so I apologize yeah. if I'm a bit fuzzy. But I remember coming to the conclusion about 20 years ago that the proper upshot of the worries about disquotation um, was... If you move between languages, disquotation can be a problem. But when you're when the very um, the very language that is the target is also the language that is the meta language, mm-hmm. uh, the meta language is, a, is an enriched version of the target language. Then I don't see any problem with disquotation. Oh. So so that that's the way I would put it. It's only when you're moving between languages where the meta language is not merely a an enriched version of the of the object language that you okay. have problems. Okay, that, that's helpful. Um, there's this, this also this problem of recent embatment that Putnam himself talks about. Um, I think Davidson talks about it's, it's like, if this argument works, then no, you haven't always been a brain in a vat, but there's this problem of maybe yesterday, an evil scientist scooped out my brain and put it in a vat. And now, um, I don't have the same problems because, uh, my language might be able to disquote and the, uh, reference of my concepts brain in a vat still refer to real brains and real vats that I've, that I have a causal history with for the last you know 29 years of my life. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think that's a, a problem as well? Do you think that that one 
is harder to solve than just uh, the always always been a brain in a vat? Absolutely, yes. It was a really nice insight. I don't know who was the first person to have that insight, but it's a really nice insight that at best, uh, Putnam's argument against the possibility of brains and vats rules out a very, very, very strong version of the brain and the vat hypothesis that I am and have always been a brain and a vat. Um, it does not rule out the idea that you were just invaded by an evil demon. So I think absolutely that that's a different that's a different um, that problem requires a different solution and is not solved by the Putnamian reflections on the the determinants of our word meanings or thought contents. Okay, do you have any kind of this is super speculative, but do you have any kind of idea or um, speculation about how long until your concepts would like acclimate inside the vats such that they would then start referring to to vat stuff and then you could use the argument? That's a it's a marvelous question. You call it speculative, but that and that's speculative in the sense in which philosophy in general is speculative. <laughs> Um, I, for, I did have in, in the period when I was still working intensively on this topic, I remember giving this one some thought. Um, and I remember thinking, well, let me be candid. I remember thinking how hard that question was. Hmm. Um, certainly you need enough time so that um, the, the best sense that we can make of your, uh, of your behavior and of your thinking requires attributing to you the concept that picks out the stuff that's in your current environment. Uh -huh. Let me just give you one sense of how we might try to make these, uh, how we might try to address that. Imagine, for example, go back to uh, Earth and Twin Earth. Imagine that you're just transported to Twin Earth and you say that stuff there is water. Mm -hmm. Most people think, and certainly Putnam 1976 thought, that when you say that for the first time, you've said something false because you've said of stuff that is XYZ that it's H2O. Um, so you've said something false. But then a number of people pointed out, well, if you spend enough time on Twin Earth, presumably the word, quote unquote, water begins to refer to X, Y, Z. How long does it take? Well, um, think about it this way. You will start thinking about the stuff in the lakes by and the rivers by you, and you will start forming beliefs and desires regarding that stuff. So presumably to capture those beliefs and those desires, we're going to want to talk about your notion uh, that the notion that the concept that corresponds to water as picking out that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it looks like as soon as you can form desires and beliefs regarding that particular stuff, um, it looks like you want to be able to say that that your term water now has a new concept. Mm -hmm. The trouble is that thought seems inconsistent with our original thought, which is when you first go to that the um, when you first go to Twin Earth, uh, yeah. Earth you you're, you're think of false thought. So that the only conclusion I came to here was if to the extent that you can think day ray of something that is of the object itself and think of it um, and describe it as as water and you're thinking and water is crucial to your understanding of it, that's going to be an important indication that maybe you have a new concept. And my thought was when you first go to Twin Earth, it's not crucial to your picking out that stuff that you think of it as water. You're just attributing a property, the property of being water to that stuff. Mm -hmm. But later on, you might want to um, think of that stuff as you're thinking of that stuff. You're thinking of it as water. At that point, it, it may well be it's you've spent enough time on Twitter. So now that now we have to attribute to you the new concept. But this is this is all very, very, very complicated. And I confess, yeah. I never saw my way to clarity on that issue. OK, yeah, well, that's it's good to hear. Um because I don't have any clarity on it. So if you've been working on it longer, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept. So the reason I've been thinking about brains in vats is because people keep talking about simulation hypothesis right. uh, now today in popular culture uh, because of Bostrom and because of uh, the matrix. And there's this problem with the matrix that some people have, have charged. And that is um, that Neo never questions his reality once he woke up from the matrix. And as I've been thinking about this, it seems to me that he has required like a, acquired a, a defeater for all of his beliefs because he, uh, well, he was systematically deceived and none of his concepts referred to the real world. And then he came to wake up and he doesn't have any concepts that, that have been in um, contact with the real world. And then furthermore, he's already been duped once. So why think that he is now in base reality? And I wanted to get your thoughts as, as uh, I don't know, are you an externalist concerning? It seems like you probably are externalist concerning justification. I yeah. wanted to get, get your yeah. take on, on Neo's predicament once he wakes up out of the matrix. 
So um, it's been years since I've seen The Matrix. So I'm just going on what you told me right now, not rather than my memory of the movie. Mm -hmm. But what you put your finger on strikes me as one of the really um, delightful, albeit dizzying and disorienting uh, effects of thinking about these matters. And that is, at what point, if ever, can we say, okay, now I've got firm ground beneath me. Now I can begin to say, this is the real world. I'm engaging now with the real world. My previous perspective, albeit fundamentally deceived, is now a perspective that I've thrown off for yeah. the correct one. And it does strike me that um, once you get into the dizziness of the first and second meditations, I think Descartes describes it well, um, it's really difficult to see your way out of it. Hmm. Um, one of the things that prompted me to be, an, as you call it, an externalist about justification, that is someone who thinks that, for example, my beliefs can be well off, even if um, they can be justified, they can be well grounded, they can be um, based on good evidence, um, even if I am not in a position where I can tell you uh, the basis on which I formed them, um, even if the things that do the justifying are beyond my ability to conceive or, yeah. or think about. One of the things that convinced me of that was the desire to get past these problems so that we could begin to think about real life problems. Like, for yeah. example, um, you know, interested, when, when is a person justified in believing? In real life cases. So if a person says, that's a tree, and it turns out she was wrong, a lot of times, whether or not, how we assess her, her performance, her behavior is going to depend on whether we thought she was justified in believing it was a tree. Yeah. And those are the kinds of questions that really interest me. Um, and, and that's why I thought, let's, I, we've got to put skepticism aside one way to do so is to be an externalist about justification. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I hate to drag you back down into it uh, with another, okay. with another okay. question, uh, but with the simulation hypothesis, um, it's a bit different than brain and a vat because, well, at least if we just stick to Bostrom's view. Um, so it's different than the matrix because you're not uh, a brain in a vat. You are a digital conscious being. And so, You'd have to have, um, you know, a, a functionalist theory of mind or something like that in order to get that kind of thing. So let's just say that's that. Um, in in my head, uh, I developed this kind of argument, and I, it's probably no good. But it seems to me like uh, the simulators have created these sims, like you and I are, are sims in this uh, simulation. But our beliefs are directed uh, not at at truth, not at uh, the the truth of base reality, but the they're they're designed to work and think within the simulation, and so I've I've called it something like like it's Plantingian improper function, because it's not it's not directed at truth. So um, people like like uh, Chalmers have said uh, in I think his paper Ma Matrix as Metaphysics that you could be just Neo could be justified in the uh, in the Matrix. He thought he's in Manhattan, but really you know maybe he's in New Jersey in base reality. But qua the Matrix, he's justified. That's that's fine with me. But as soon as Neo starts to think about him being a sim, uh, that's where I think it breaks down for me, because that's where I think the content externalism comes into play. Like how how could he think about base reality if he comes to believe that his mind has been developed to reason within the simulation? Does that does that make sense to you at all? Absolutely. Um, it, it makes sense. I, I want to just go back for a second and talk a little bit about, about proper function because I, I, I wonder whether um, there's a slippage that is a little quick and I'd love to just um, sure. call attention to it. I think um, when you mentioned uh, Plantingian proper function, you immediately assumed that the proper function of belief would be truth. And certainly there are people who will, who will think that. Keep in mind that not everyone um, will think of proper function in the same way. So um, for example, um, things that are designed can have proper functions. Their, their function comes not from uh, evolution, but it comes from design. So right. if in the, in the, um, uh, the uh, what, what we're talking about, the simulation, the simulator is the one who actually created the program, designed these things so that the aim of belief would be to conform to the simulation. It could well be true that a belief that does so is fulfilling its proper function, right. even though it's not true. Definitely. Yeah. So, so that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important point. Then I would say, um, I mean, your 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 comment is a, your question is a nice one. I don't quite know what to make of the um, uh, of of Neo as he's coming out. Your, your sense, let me just see if I have this. Your sense, Parker, is that if semantic externalism is true, then Neo can't make sense of his situation. He can't even so much as formulate the thought that he's been radically deceived. Is that is that your worry? 
No, I think that he can formulate it. Um, so maybe Neo's uh, not helpful because he is a, a little brain in a vat, but like, uh, let's, let's use me and say, I'm a SIM. I'm just, okay. there's nothing else, but I'm just a, a computer program. Yep. Uh, and now I come to believe that I'm a computer program and that someone designed me to think in this reality. That's fine. Uh, I could still have, maybe if, if Chalmers is right, I have justified beliefs about the simulated world. But then when I come to, to, when I come to the belief that my cognitive faculties have been designed to function in the simulated world, uh, then I'm, I see maybe a self-defeat argument when I start reasoning I about see what you mean. base reality. I see what you mean. I'm, I'm going to repeat this back to you, Parker, because I want to make sure I've got this. This is a nice thought. Your thought is you could well, as a sim, you could well come to the justified belief that you, that you were a sim and that your mental faculties were designed for the sim experience. Mm -hmm. But if you do come to that conclusion and then get some sense that you've left the sim experience, the fact that you know, or the, the very fact that you came to the conclusion, the justified conclusion that your faculties were, um, were designed for the sim experience may defeat any justification you have for believing anything about the non-sim non -sim experience. Is that a fair way to put it? That's right. And, and it, so then I would, I couldn't believe anything about the non-sim experience, including that I, I am a sim because that's, that's a thought from the outside. Um, but then maybe even still, if, if it's improper function, if it's, uh, if the, my cognitive faculties have been designed and that it's aimed not at, at uh, truth, but at whatever we call the, the simulated world, uh, then I come to believe that, but I'm acting as if I know that as truth. But it seems like I might have a defeater then for, for all of my beliefs, including the belief that I live in a computer simulation. So there might be like, like two lines of thought here. Good. So I, I, I want to play the devil's advocate, not because I'm confident that there's anything on the other side, but just to see how far we can push your thought and whether it's going to stumble. Um, I wonder whether we can say that um, just because you're using your, your belief, your, your cognitive faculties under conditions in which they were not uh, under conditions for which they weren't designed, I think uh, you are regarding that as uh, it's, as soon as you recognize that you're regarding that as a defeater. I wonder whether that's too strong. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether um, even if I come to know that I'm using cognitive faculties under conditions for which they weren't designed, all that will do is it will make it so that I shouldn't rely without further ado on those faculties. But it mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I can't rely on them at all. Um, here's the kind of thing that I have in mind. Imagine, imagine that, um, imagine that I come to learn a game and, uh, that game is, is a, is a complicated game and I get really, really good at it. And I have a bunch of principles that I use when I play the game. And then imagine that uh, somebody introduces a new game to me and they say to me, Hey, Sandy, this is a lot like the previous game, but it's actually, it's a little bit different. Does that mean that I, I can't use any of the principles I used before? Well, it does mean I shouldn't use them uncritically. That's for sure. 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 But it's not obvious that it means that I shouldn't use any of them. Maybe I actually want to try to use them, albeit critically, and get information on them. But if I get a little bit of information that they're working well, maybe that's sufficient to tell me that I can still continue to use them. And similarly with, with cognitive faculties under conditions for which they weren't designed. That's a thought. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's a really good thought. I want to push back and say, well, um, it's not just the it's not just random rules, or it's not just rules that we're uh, appropriating for different, um, or, or rules or tools that we're appropriating for a different circumstance. But it's it, it might be a special case because it's actually our cognitive faculties, um, and so maybe the disanalogy between the two would be: in one, you you have the same cognitive faculties that are appropriating different rules, but in the second one. It's your cognitive faculties that are are being called into question. So the disanalogy might be might be right there. Does, does yes. Help? Yeah. Although I, I'm still finding myself not fully moved. And let me let me yeah. see if I can if I can give you a sense of why. And, and I, I invite you to tell me that this doesn't move you either, because that would be helpful to me uh, as I clarify this. Think about there's a debate in, in um, philosophy of science. Boss von Frosten is famous for this in his constructive empiricist move, where he's mm -hmm. he basically says, look, um, when we're using our our, our unaided um, perceptual faculties, we 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 can be entitled to believe things that our unaided uh, perceptual faculties give us. But as soon as we use things that um, augment our faculties, like looking through electron microscopes or looking through these 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 uh, telescopes that with very powerful telescopes that we look at the stars there, 
you know, there we, we shouldn't believe any of the things that we, that we, uh, we should rather um, re just regard ourselves as getting perceptual experience of the sort that scientific theory should be able to accommodate. Mm -hmm. So, so von Frosten's idea seems to be: look, our perceptual faculties are perfectly—they're perfectly okay when we use them in ordinary life. But as soon as you use them under conditions for which they haven't evolved—not his language, but you can imagine him saying sure. this—you sure. should be careful. Um, I, I okay, but still, I say that's fine. But as long as we have some sense of how the the these the micro the the you know the um, the telescope or the microscope works. I'm not entirely sure that we can't continue to rely on our faculties, even though we are now using them to look at the very, very small and the very, very large and far away. Uh, and those are things for which our faculties did not evolve to give us to, to, to provide us information with. Yeah. If, if, I'm, if that makes sense. It does make sense because uh, Nate Lawfer and I have been going back and forth on this and he gives the same answer, which, Nate which Lawfer. No, no surprise there. Yeah. Right. Uh, yes. So, so that's good. That's helpful. What if, um, what if you, what I'm thinking basically, and I don't want to bake too much into the cake here uh, against the simulation hypothesis proponent, and so I won't do that, but just for, for uh, sake of argument here, if you came to find out that um, so the, per, the, the you live in a simulation and the simulator designed you to, um, your, your cognitive faculties to arrive at truth like less than 50% of the time, would you be justified in believing any of your beliefs? So this is a great question, and this is a question that I have to confess has perplexed me for a long time. There's a great literature, if you don't know it, you, you may already know it, but maybe some of your listeners don't know it. There's a great literature on, on higher order evidence that worries about things like this. Um, and uh, a really uh, lovely, lovely philosopher, David, David Christensen at Brown, has, um, has pointed out in several of his recent papers on, on these kinds of topics that if I come to the conclusion that my faculties are unreliable. And he, by the way, Christensen isn't the only one who's, who said this. I think Adam Elga has a paper on this as well. If I've come to the conclusion that my faculties are unreliable, or as I think Elga calls it, anti-reliable, um, it's not obvious that I should even begin to accept that very claim. Um, right. Unless I have grounds for thinking that the faculties that I've used to come to the conclusion that my faculties are anti-reliable uh, is itself reliable, it's not clear that I can I can um, have any stable standing point here whatsoever. And so um, once you begin to entertain these kinds of skeptical worries, I think you're probably going to end up with not being able to think anything right. uh, rationally right. or with justification. Right. That's great. Okay. So that's the goal for me to to pit that against the simulation hypothesis. Um, and I'm probably not there yet. So I gotta gotta do some more. But but that's Good really luck. helpful. That, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna track that down. Um, but uh, Dr. Goldberg, as we finish up here, um, we talked a lot about. I really appreciate you going over this stuff with me. Uh, the book is from 2016. Uh, the the dissertation work is from way back when you were working on that. So I appreciate you you know accessing that again for us. What's something you're you're working on uh, nowadays that people can be looking out for? I've gotten obsessed with the social dimensions of knowledge. That's what mm -hmm. I have been uh, utterly obsessed with. Um, I include in that obsession obsessions about the nature of language use and how we spread um, in, spread knowledge through through communities and how we react to one another as we talk to one another. But those are the kinds of questions that I've gotten extremely interested in. You know, the, the standard epistemological theory, I think it's fair to say, has been individualistic in its outlook, which is to suggest that it it looks at the individual in isolation from everyone else and asks, how does that individual, as an individual, come to know things? And the, the more I think about it, the more I think um, that's not the question we should be asking. We should be asking, how do, um, how do we as individuals within a collective who often aim to acquire our information in collectives or in groups or in community with one another, how do uh, we come to know things? How do individuals come to know things in that context? And I think if you ask the question like that, you will you'll come to very different conclusions in the conclusion, for example, that Descartes came to. But even you'll come to different conclusions than the conclusions you see as recently as 20 or 30 years ago in contemporary epistemology. Yeah, oh, it's so fantastic. So I, it, it, it might be a little bit downstream. I'm still trying to catch up on, on the literature, um, but the, the triangulation argument and, and uh, Nagel, uh, Nagel uh, summed up Davidson's argument by a little pithy phrase that was like, I think, therefore, you are. 
And that, that's been so intriguing to me in the social dimensions of acquiring concepts uh, through a process of triangulation and, and, and with full-blown linguistic triangulation. So I'm really looking forward to, to jumping into more uh, of your recent work. That's super fascinating. And then from there on to, to social uh, knowledge as well. So uh, as we close up, last question here. Can we think that we're a brain in a vat? And then um, part two, should we think that we're a brain in a vat? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we certainly can. I think we can think we're brains in vats because I, I actually think we're not brains in vats. And I think we, we um, at least if you ask me, should we believe that we're brains in vats? I'd say no. Should we um, humor our intellects and expand our imagination by entertaining the possibility? I think that's a, that's a lovely thing to do. Uh, just don't get too suckered into it. Otherwise, you might become a philosopher. <laughs> that's right. That's awesome. Well, um, that's going to have to do it for now, folks. It's been a, a fantastic conversation. Really, really exciting. Uh, my, my wheels are turning right now. Uh, but that's going to have to do it for now. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. <laughs>